0: Welcome, here at Waterstone we invite you to find your story within God's bigger story. We are a church that lives for something bigger than ourselves and is passionate to proclaim and demonstrate the way of Jesus. We are currently living through a time of radical shifts in technology, ethics, secular ideologies and religion. Our culture is increasingly shallow and lonely. Yet, rather than offering an alternative, the Big C Church often remains silent or compromised. In a time of compromise and disillusionment, God is calling his people to a movement of beautiful resistance. We invite you to join us as we walk through the final chapter of the Book of Romans and experience a renewed vision for who the church can be, replacing compromise with conviction. If you would like to visit and attend in person, We would love to have you. Go to waterstonechurch.org to RSVP for a weekend service time on Saturday evening or Sunday morning.
1: Beautiful resistance. This is the last message in a series we've been doing on the last five chapters of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Beautiful resistance because Paul has called his church to worship the true God, with their whole life. To the end that we even think that we are in already the last days and the new kingdom that Jesus launched by His life and death and resurrection. And the key feature of this new life is love. And Paul has gone back time and again in these last chapters of his letter, to call us to love one another in here and love the other out there. Love, the primary distinctive of the church. So today, as Paul wraps, we're going to see how he demonstrates in himself this idea of relentless love for one another and for the other. It's a fascinating chapter and perhaps an unexpected place. We are going to preach 16 verses with 35 names and thank you notes. But I hope you'll see how fascinating this passage is. I've sure enjoyed studying it, and I'm excited to share it with you this morning. Let me read it. This is now my third time reading it aloud, and we'll see how we do with the names again. Please follow as I read. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Centria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. <coughs> Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend, Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Woo-hoo! Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachus. Greet apellus whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Greet Assynechris, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermes, and the other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus and his sister Olympus and all the Lord's people who were with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. The word of the Lord. (laughs) Uh, I'm excited to dig into these 35 names, but first we need to talk about Paul's situation and what's going on. He's in Corinth in Greece he's packing. He's 59 or 60 years old, which, by the way, in the ancient world, old. And he's thinking, but I've got one more adventure. He tells the Church of Rome that he's already preached the gospel from Jerusalem to Illyricum, and he feels confident that there's churches in most every urban center around the Mediterranean uh, Sea. And so Now he wants to go west. He wants to go to Rome, and the main mission, Spain. So he tells the church at Rome, first I need to go to Jerusalem to deliver an offering. You see, the church in Jerusalem was going through a severe famine, and Gentile churches in Macedonia and Achaia had taken an offering for the suffering saints in Jerusalem. So he's going to deliver that first, and then he's going to head towards Rome. And it's interesting... What he says to Rome to prepare them for his coming. Look at verse 24 in chapter 15. I plan to do so, that is stop in Rome, see you, when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now that word assist, in the original language, it's the word sent. And by this time in the church world, that word sent has become a technical term for a missionary raising support. In the, ni- in the 20th century, we used to call it in churches deputation. I think now in the 21st century, it's called support discovery. Paul is going to come to Rome and like a missionary saying, look, uh, the mission is now to go to Spain. I need you to support me financially with people, if anyone can go with me, and with prayer. And notice the prayer piece, verses 30 and 31. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there. So Paul's concerned about two things. First, that the church in Jerusalem will receive the offering, that it will be, as Paul says, acceptable. Why is he concerned about that? Well, Paul is still, (laughs) the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem are still hesitant with Paul. They don't know what to do with him. I mean, he was a Pharisee, dramatically converted. They still wonder what exactly now he's teaching about the Mosaic Law. So there's some question about Paul in the Jerusalem church, and there's some question as to whether the Jerusalem church will actually accept an offering from the Gentile churches in Turkey. So Paul is preparing the way. Pray over this offering that the Jerusalem church will accept it. But you also see Paul's very concern for his safety because the non-Christian Jews in Jerusalem, they want Paul dead. And what's amazing is the way his prayers answered, not in the way he expected, because what happens is when Paul gets to Jerusalem, indeed, there's a riot. And Paul begins to get flogged And he cries out to Roman soldiers, I'm a Roman citizen. This shouldn't be happening to me. And God's answer to Paul's prayer is that now he will get to Rome under Roman protection because the Jews attacked him. What I want us to see as we pull up here for some practical application is this. In the same way that the gospel went to Spain, Is the same way that the gospel continues 21 centuries later to go around the world. Do you know how it happens? Through you reaching into your wallet and supporting global missions. Through you, at times in your life, being willing to say, Lord, do you want me to go? Whether that's a short-term trip or maybe longer. And thirdly, through prayer. What I want to point out is the way Paul captures it. He says, join me in my struggle. That's one word in the original language. It literally means have the same agony in prayer. There's something mysterious that when we choose a missionary and begin to pray for them on a regular basis, we somehow share in their same agony. We're apart of what they're doing bearing the fruit and sharing the load so what I want to challenge you to do if you haven't done this yet is to incorporate global missions into your spiritual journey you can do that by going on our website we have this amazing list of missionaries serving all over the world They're on our website. You can go on our website under serve and then hit global serve and it will tell you about each missionary and their family, where they're serving and most of them have websites, their own websites, where you can get connected to them in prayer and in financial giving. Your spiritual journey will be so much richer When you do this, you know how this works, right? There's the heart and the treasure thing. Jesus says where your treasure is, your heart follows. When you start supporting individual missionaries, you become very interested in what's going on in that part of the world and what they're doing and how you can come alongside. And with your families, with friends, on a regular, consistent basis, make it part of your spiritual practice to pray for a missionary. Adopt one and pray each week for them. What happened in Rome happens in Littleton and we shape the world. Now the names. Are you ready? What we're going to see in these 35 thank you notes is women and men, Gentiles and Jews, powerless and powerful, all together, the beauty, the power of the church, which is why to this moment, it remains an unstoppable movement. Let's look at how it worked. In Rome, there's women and men. So we begin by understanding the ancient world. Women were on the bottom rung of the Greco-Roman and the Jewish cultural ladder. Men were up here. Women were down here, undervalued, overlooked, just above a piece of property. And yet, when Paul writes his thank you notes to the church at Rome, he lists nine women. That's radical. I want to talk about three of them. Phoebe, look at verses 16, 1 and 2, how Paul describes her. I commend to you, our sister Phoebe, a deacon. She was the first named deacon in a Gentile church. I want you to notice that it's deacon, it's masculine. There's no such word in the original language as deaconess. That's English men trying to say women shouldn't be in ministry. She held the office of deacon. Notice at the end, she has been the benefactor of many people including the Apostle Paul, benefactor. That's the word patron, or in some translations, protector of Paul himself. It means she was a woman of wealth and influence and using that in Corinth to support the church there. But what's happening is she now is going to make a trip to Rome And this is the third very interesting thing that you need to remember about Phoebe. In the ancient world, when the carrier of the letter in the early church brought the letter, so Paul knows she's going from Corinth to Rome, and so he decides to send his letter, his magnum opus, Romans, to the church in Rome. Phoebe carries it. And the tradition was, if you were the letter carrier, you read it to the church, you explained it, and you answer questions. Do you understand what's going on here? The first person to preach Paul's magnum opus, the book of Romans, in the capital city of the empire is Phoebe. Yeah, you, some of you women, let it rip. That is incredible. And so beautifully resistant. There's Priscilla. They're mentioned six times in the New Testament letters and Acts, and four of the six times, Priscilla's name is first. Now, you need to know, again, in the ancient world, to put the woman's name first defied social custom. And the scholarly consensus is that her name was first because she was a recognized leader in the early church. The way they worked was they were like Paul, tent makers. And they did this in Corinth, and they did it in Ephesus, and now they're doing it in Rome. They would set up their shop, start their business, rent a house, and in their house, start a church. And there's Priscilla, church planter. And then thirdly, there's Junia. And as you heard me read, Junia and we think her husband, Adronicus, were apostles. Now, not the original 12 But in the early church, there was an office of apostle who could uh, teach and who could perform miraculous gifts like the apostles. And Junia was a woman who was an apostle in the early church. Did I say three women? I want to talk about six women. Mary, Tryphena, and Tryphosa. Paul says they worked hard in the Lord. He only says that of women. Yeah, do you understand what's happening here? Paul, writing in the world where men were here and women were here, he's saying to the women, I see you. I see your leadership. I see how hard you're working. I see you. That's what the gospel does. That's how it changes hearts so that a community like this can be powerful and beautiful. It takes men and women here. That's why at Waterstone, women can hold the highest uh, level of leadership and become an elder in our church. That's why we believe women can use all their spiritual gifts that God gives them or all around the church, even in including preaching, and teaching. That's the power. That's the beauty of the church. God designed the church to be led from Paul's example by women and men. Secondly, Gentiles and Jews. I want you to notice some names. I won't read them all again. There's Jewish names. There's an Asian name, the first convert in Asia. There's Roman names. There's the Persian name Persis, which as you'll see in a minute means a woman who is from Persia. (laughs) And then there's this North African name, Rufus, who is the son of Simon Niger in Acts 13. Now, this is, you've heard of him, Simon Cyrene, the Simon who carried the crossbeam of Jesus' cross. We'll read about him at our Good Friday service. That Simon was from North Africa. Cyrene is in North Africa, modern-day Libya. He carried Jesus' cross, and God worked, and he became a believer. He became a leader in the early church, and Rufus now is his son ministering for the gospel in Rome. But I want it to be clearly understood that Paul is writing to Rufus, the son of Simon Niger. Simon means, Simon Niger is translated Simon the Black, so, Rufus is the son of a black leader in the early church. I also find it interesting that Paul really calls out Rufus's mom and says, She's my mom, too. So, Paul the Jew had a black mom. That is a beautiful thing. Do you see what's happening here? The first thing that's happening here is power. Because when you start having a place like this where people from all different ethnicities and backgrounds and places in life starts to come together, well, it becomes a threat to the Roman Empire. They had a very strict and controlled hierarchy, and this is messing with everything. In fact, you can read scholars of antiquity like the late Larry Hurtado who taught at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. His New Testament research was on Uh, Christians in the Roman Empire and his research concludes that the Christian movement in the Roman Empire was the first movement to be outlawed from assembling in the Roman Empire. Why? Because they became a threat to the controlled and structured hierarchies of Rome. And Rome tried to shut them down. Here we are where's the Roman Empire? There's also beauty in this, right? Because as you read all these different names from all these different places, did you catch three times Paul saying, that name, my fellow Jews, three times, three moments, my fellow Jews, my fellow Jews. Paul is still connected to his heritage. For him, unity does not mean colorblindness. And that's not the goal of the church, to be colorblind. Do you know what the goal of church is? Is to be color rich. Where we gather together all ethnicities and we gather together all colors and we celebrate each one and see that rich diversity. That's the beauty. Not by pretending differences don't exist, but by gathering the ethnicities together and celebrating. That's what Paul's doing beauty, and power. Let me just step back and and have us work with this a little bit. What you see is the diverse leadership of the Roman church, but what you also see is Paul's social network, right? These are his friends. Now, I want you to remember that Paul was a Jewish Pharisee before he became a Christian. And if there was ever a homogenized community in the ancient world, it was the Jews. They did not have any kind of fellowship with anyone outside of their community. But yet the gospel gets inside Paul, and now look at his social network. People from everywhere are his friends. I think that for us is a bit of a challenge. Most of us, it'd be interesting to share our social networks and to see how much of homogenized it is or if there's any diversity at all with people we would call friends now don't mishear me I, I don't want to be controversial and I don't want to be mean the fact is we live in a very homogeneous community the fact is most of us our social networks are mostly white not because we're racist but because we choose the path of least resistance And so what the call for us is to examine our social networks and then begin to brainstorm how they can become more rich in ethnicity and color. That's for you to discuss with your friends and your small groups and your families. It usually means going to where people are. I was reading an article at Baylor University this past week where there's a whole new theory in this whole study of racial reconciliation called contact theory. Contact theory means you've got to go where they are and hang out. Go to Washington Park instead of a park here in Littleton. I mean, you, you go and you begin to look for relational possibilities, but it's contact theory again and again and again. That's the call of the church. In fact, I've been reading a great book called Beyond a Racial Gridlock by George Yancey, who teaches at the University of North Texas, and he put it this way, our vision as Christians must be proactive rather than reactive. Christians must make the effort to go out of their way to gain friends of different races. We will do this not to appear politically correct, but because we want to overcome the old animosities between us. Most of us would be surprised if we looked at our workplaces, schools and social circles to see how many of people of different races there already are around us. Diversifying our social networks is a Christian mission to help heal racial strife in our society. So there's women and men, there's Gentile and Jews. And thirdly, there's the powerless and the powerful look We know some of these names because we have found them in archaeological discoveries and inscriptions and then compared them to Roman writings. We know that they're slave names and used in literature to talk about slaves. Now, we're not saying that all of these names were slaves, but certainly some are and some were. I just think it's interesting. Tertius, who we'll talk about in a moment, his name literally means third. In other words, he wasn't given a personal name. He was known by his birth order from his master. He's the third. Or the woman, Persis, oh, the, the master couldn't remember her name, so she just, he just said she's the Persian one. Compare that with the power names. You have uh, Aristobus, who we know was the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the Roman ruler over the Jewish people of Palestine at the time of Christ's birth an influential person. We know that Narcissus w- was a friend of the emperor Claudius, which means that the gospel had penetrated to the highest levels of the imperial palace. And we know that Erastus, well, Paul tells us directly, is the director of public works in the city of Rome. So around the same table, you have slaves or former slaves on the leadership team making decisions for Rome with the most powerful men in their culture. Where else can that happen? I want to just see one moment of more beauty around this. Look in verses uh, 22 and 23 of chapter 16. This is near the end. Paul's about ready to sign off. Remember his eyesight meant that he dictated his letters. Well, Tertius, we'll call him third, third was the scribe writing all this down, evidently an educated slave. But he, he writes down this letter, and then Paul's kind of done thinking about Rome and Romans, and he says, okay, hey, third, say hi to everybody in Rome. And then Gaius, now that's whose house they're staying in. He's a wealthy man. He's supporting the church at Corinth. Everyone's staying at Gaius' house. Gaius, you say hi to everybody. Paul introducing his two good friends, third and Gaius or how about the next verse Erastus public works director in Rome with Cortus. what do you think Cortus means in Latin fourth <laughs> maybe they were brothers you have Erastus and fourth saying hi is this thinking this we have two of the most powerful men in their culture, known to history by their personal names on the leadership team with two guys known in their culture and to all of history as third and fourth. Where else can that happen? I submit to you that it's a product of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who can transform a human heart that tears down all hierarchies that we put in place and lifts the low. I submit to you that it's the good news of Jesus, the gospel, which goes like this. God made the world and everything in it. We broke the world and everything in it. And the Bible calls us sinners. Us. Emperors. The influential and the powerful and the wealthy we need God and the slave and the dispossessed and the displaced we need God and the gospel is that God sent his only son so that everyone who comes to him at the cross is leveled the highest are humbled the lowest are lifted and at the foot of the cross there's no hierarchy. We are all there because of this one statement that we were so sinful that God had to send his own son to save us, but so loved that he did. And to the degree that that sits deeply in our heart is the degree that we will be a community of relentless barrier-crossing love. So I end with this question for you, for us to sit in for a few moments of quiet reflection. Can we, Waterstone, become the kind of transformed community that defies explanation? Our first prayer is for anyone watching or anyone in the room, maybe you're checking out Christianity. Maybe you're just not sure at all what it means and how to have a relationship with God. I want you to know that the Gospel is for you. That if we come to God and confess our sins, He'll forgive us. That if we confess with our mouth that He's Lord and that He rose from the dead, He'll save us. And we can have a relationship with God and have our heart completely changed. And all you need to do at home or in this room is in the next moment just say, Jesus, I need You. I want You. Save me. Give yourself to Him. Be transformed. And for the the church, I just want to pray... Holy Spirit, come. Remind us again and again of the love that You've shown us we can show to others. And it's a love that moves, that goes, that crosses boundaries and barriers to reach people that God loves. Help us to be a church that goes. For the sake of Jesus, amen.